everyone, and welcome back to Then Again. I am Marie Bartlett, and I am the director of the Ada May Ivester Education Center here at the Northeast Georgia History Center. And today I have with me Dr. Matt Standard, professor of history at Barry College. Dr. Standard has published several books and articles about Europe's relations with the wider world, including European Overseas Imperialism, 1879 to 1999, A Short History, which today we will just be scratching the surface of in this podcast. So thank you so much for being with us today, Dr. Standard. Thank you for having me. I appreciate the opportunity. This is great. So firstly, for our listeners, could you just define what imperialism is? Sure, that's a, that's a great place to start um, because it is a term that has, well, I mean, it's, it, the meaning of the term has changed uh, quite a bit over time and it means different things to different people even today. Um, I think that the the way that it's it's used oftentimes today, this idea that there is a one power or one state that is um, you know sort of lording it over other states or other peoples, uh, they control different territories and different peoples, and they uh, they set up an unequal relationship between themselves, which they're sort of at the center of the the, the empire, and they have these peripheries that are outside of the empire uh, or at the the uh, the limits of the empire. Um, those peripheries are placed in a subordinate position to the imperial power. I, so I think that that's, that's sort of like a, a, you know, in a nutshell, what imperialism, I, I think, means to a lot of people today. But but that, it has not always meant that. I mean, it has, you know, empire has meetings going back to the Roman Empire and other empires beyond just the the, the Western world. The time period where it starts to, to be used in this sense of, you know, uh, some state building an empire and, you know, taking over other areas kind of aggressively and, again, setting up these peoples that are conquered in a subordinate position, I think it really goes back to Napoleon III, uh, who was the emperor of France from around 1851 to 1870 or so. And uh, the actual, the, the people that accused him of being an imperialist or exercising or engaging in imperialism were actually the British. And uh, or a lot of his critics were British. And they uh, said this with no sense of irony or anything because you know, Britain at the time had a very large empire. But what they did is they, they were criticizing Napoleon III because he, he and he did have a pretty active and, and aggressive foreign policy at, at many moments. And they were accusing him of trying to sort of, you know, uh, disrupt the status quo and, and have France sort of reattain a great position of imperial greatness as, as had existed under uh, the first Napoleon. And the British saw this as a kind of a dangerous thing. And they saw some of his moves in, in North Africa and in other parts of Europe as sort of, a, yeah, well, they called it an imperialist sort of mode where the, the French were trying to unfairly or unjustly exercise uh, power over these other other peoples. And then the, the period of Napoleon III, when this term you know comes more into use, uh, that, that sort of goes right into the end of the century of the, the late 1800s, where indeed, the uh, not just the French, but the, uh, a lot of European countries did take a much more aggressive, took a lot more aggressive actions, I should say, uh, overseas and where they started building up overseas empires. And, and I think that since that time period, since the, the second half of the 1800s, right down to the 20th century to today, uh, I think our notion of imperialism, you know, one state, again, building up uh, an, an empire, placing people in subordinate positions to the, the imperial center, I think it's really followed on this idea of um, the, the aggressiveness of the, of the, the, the French under uh, Napoleon III and then, and then the empire building by the, the Europeans in the late 1800s. So why did you choose to begin your book in the year 1879? What happened in that year that made you want to start your book then? Yeah, have that the, the period bookended by this year, 1879. Yeah, so the title of the book, European Overseas Empire, 1879 to 1999. 
a short history. And it, honestly, a, a bit of this was just to have the, the you know the the numbers, but both the, the the dates ended in the number nine, uh, so that it would kind of have that that ring to it. But there there's actually a couple of uh, other more substantive reasons why I picked 1879. I mean, one reason why uh, is I a, a lot of people look back on that era of this sort of new imperialism of the late 1800s, they tend to zero in on the year 1885, because that's the year that the um, Berlin Conference ended, began in 1884, ended in 1885. And a lot of people think that that the Berlin Conference kind of divided up the whole world. I mean, you see this again and again, or divided up all of Africa among the European powers, that kind of thing, which it did not do. And I, we, could, we could talk about that a little bit more. But you know, before 1884, 1885, and the Berlin Conference, there's already a lot of things going on. And a lot of these uh, events that, that really lead into this really intensified era of uh, overseas empire building by the, the Europeans, a lot of them were, were happening right around 1879. So, for example, there was, um, there was a war between Turkey and Russia in 1878 that led to a Turkish defeat. And the Austro-Hungarian Empire takes over, uh, effectively takes over um, Bosnia around this time period. And this is very much remarked on by other European powers. They notice oh, Austria-Hungary is, you know, is more, more expansive in the Balkans and these kinds of things. 1879, the very next year uh, in Egypt, uh, the Egyptians had to kind of try to throw off French and British influence. Egypt was technically part of the Ottoman Empire under the Turks, but it really was under dual Franco-British control. They tried to throw that off and it did not work. And, and so there's a, a sort of reimposition of Franco-British control of a sort in Egypt in, in 1879, again, this, a lot of people were very well aware that this was going on. It caught a lot of, I mean, a lot of you know, diplomats and diplomatic circles. Very, you know, it was a big deal at the time. It, uh, very soon thereafter, after 1879, the, the French make a power move in Tunisia. And uh, by 1881, basically, they've created a protectorate in Tunisia. The Italians resented this. In 1879, the British are invading Zululand in South Africa. So there's all sorts of things going on. And so that's why I picked that, that date. And, and a lot of that feeds right into the, the Berlin Conference of 1884-1885. There's so much going on, especially in particular in Africa, that um, some leaders decided, oh, we have to do something. We, we got to get, get together because there's so many things happening so quickly. Uh, we want to make sure that we, um, you know, a, a war or, or something worse doesn't spill, spill over from all of these European actions overseas. So you mentioned the Berlin Conference. So can we circle back to that? Because that's an incredibly fascinating. And I think when a lot of people think of the Berlin Conference, they think of the, the scramble for Africa. They, there's those political cartoons of, you know, a bunch of men sitting around the table, you know, with knives cutting up the world. Right. So how accurate are those political cartoons and what actually happened there? Right. That's right. Yeah, it does uh, harken up all these images of these political cartoons at the time. You have slicing up this cake, you know, the, the world is a cake and all the European powers are taking a slice. Yeah, it was a big deal. It, it was it was a conference that began in 1884 and actually uh, continued into the spring of 1885. It wasn't finally over until, oh gosh, March or April of 1885. So this was back when they really knew how to, to do these conferences. You know, it wasn't just like a, a couple days. This wasn't a Zoom conference. You know, they really knew how to, to do this. And it's called the Berlin Conference because it was convened by the rulers of Prussia, you know, Germany at the time. It was it was held in Berlin, and it did go on for a long period of time. And it, it was it is a major you know milestone in this era of of empire building. There's no doubt about it. What's sort of ironic about it is that the the power that convened this conference, which were the, the Germans, 
And I mean, really the leading figure in Germany at the time was Otto von Bismarck, the chancellor of um, the German empire. He was not really interested in overseas empire. Uh, so this is a, it, the conference is a major spark that leads to the so-called scramble for Africa. But again, the irony here is that, that Bismarck did not call the conference because he was interested in Germany acquiring colonies. Uh, now, there were German interests who were in German colonial enthusiasts for who for sure, and they were excited about this opportunity. But they but, but Bismarck, he did not share their views. And in fact, there's an interesting quote, which, which I quote in the book uh, by that's attributed to Bismarck. Around this time of the Berlin Conference, a, a colonial enthusiast, a German colonial enthusiast, came to him and said, uh, supposedly said, you know, he, you know, here's all these areas in Africa. He sorry, showed him a map of, of Africa and said, here's all these, you know, these great places that we could potentially get involved in, and you know, Germany could, you know, stake a claim to, uh, you know, the colonies in Africa. And supposedly Bismarck replied, "Your map of Africa is quite nice." But my map of Africa lies here in Europe. Here's Russia, and here is France, and we are in the middle. That is my map of Africa. And what he meant by this was that he, his his main concern was what was with European affairs, which you know at the time they they, you know, they were these powers were considered the great powers, as they referred to themselves as. And you know Germany was a leading great power by this time, and but it was not completely secured. It was surrounded by these other major powers, France in the West and, and Russia, uh, you know, this massive giant Russia in the East. And Bismarck was always aware of the precariousness of Germany's position right there in the center of Europe. And so he called the conference, again, not to pursue endeavors in Africa, but to try to secure the status quo in Europe. Uh, so Germany by 1885 or 1884, when the conference begins, is a status quo power. It has recently come off a string of victories against the Austrians, against the Danes, against the French. So it's militarily, it's the, the dominant power by the 1880s. Uh, in terms of its economy, Germany was just doing fantastically well by the 1880s. The you know, second industrial revolution is going on and Germany's just leapfrogging ahead in so many different areas. They're even outcompeting the British in many areas, in many ways. And Germany was uh, newly unified. It had just been unified at the beginning of the 1870s. So it's a relatively new entity right there again in the center of Europe. And Bismarck wanted to make sure that nothing happened that would mess up the situation, which was a good one for Germany. So there's all these things going on, not just in Africa, but a lot of them are happening in Africa. These different things I mentioned for briefly earlier, North Africa, there's also explorers you know, in, in West Africa and Central Africa. These Europeans are increasingly running into each other at different places, and Bismarck feared that somehow conflicts over overseas territories and claims, you know, colonial claims in different parts of Africa or elsewhere, this might spill over into a conflict in Europe. And so let's get together and let's agree on some rules uh, when it comes to these overseas ventures so that we don't end up fighting with each other. And so that's that's largely what occurred over the course of those months in 1884, 1885, is that these European powers, and they were all European powers. This is to be clear, this is not a Berlin conference of African leaders or you know, the you know, leaders from the, the global south, as some people might call it today, of from South Asia or elsewhere. No, this was a European conference. And these European uh, rule, I think the one you know, quasi uh, non-European power would have been the Ottoman Empire. The Ottoman Empire was invited. In any case, they agree on some basic rules to establish that a country has possession over an overseas territory. You had to have set up a certain number of posts. You had to have people on the ground. You had to um, be able to 
demonstrate your, uh, you prove that you had people on the ground, that, you know, these sorts of things. And if you could do that, then, then you could, you know, actually have a recognized stake in a particular area. In addition to setting up sort of, sort of some of the ground rules for the effective occupation, as it was called, of, of lands, they also did agree on some spheres of influence. There were, you know, the, the French were active in Algeria, the, the British in South Africa, like in Zululand, as I pointed out. And in different areas, the Portuguese had claims along uh, certain coasts of Africa. So there, it was agreed that certain areas were within the sphere of influence of a particular power. But the conference did not actually divide up Africa. That, that's where the political cartoons have had their impact over the years. A lot of people think that, yes, in 1885, they sat down around these maps and the European powers divided up, you know, all of Africa or all of, you know, the Africa and, South, and Southeast Asia. Uh, they did not actually do that. But by setting up these ground rules and by making clear to everybody, you know, here are these different spheres of influence, it really did spark a, a scramble for territories. You know, everybody knew that there were rules for demonstrating effective occupation. And everybody also knew that everybody knew that there were rules. And so now everybody knew that, you know, this is on everybody's mind and they're going to be out there doing these things. And so even if we don't want a particular territory, maybe we should go claim a, a territory just to keep it out of the hands of another European power, that, that kind of thing. So it, while it doesn't divide up Africa, the Berlin Conference for sure, it ended up acting as a spark, uh, like an accelerant, accelerating these tendencies that were already underway where Europeans were making more and more claims uh, overseas, in, again, in particular in Africa. So how would one of these European countries go about claiming land in Africa then? So yeah, what they would have to do, they had to do a, a number of different things. I, you know, I briefly mentioned that they, they would have to like establish a post. So that, that could be like a military post, a trading post, so an official post by the government. So not just a, it couldn't just be one explorer off on their own, or it, it couldn't be say like, you know, like a particular, just a missionary house or, or just a, a merchant who might set up a post. Now, some of those might've been converted and that kind of thing. But in, in theory, a state had to actually set up their own post, uh, you know, where they would literally fly the flag of the state that was that was claiming that area. Another thing that was required was the signing of treaties with local leaders, recognizing the, the sovereignty of a particular state. So as an example of how this worked, there was a German explorer who just happened to be in sort of central, south central or, or, or eastern Africa, sort of central eastern Africa during the time period of the Berlin Conference itself. Uh, he was a major colonial enthusiast by the name of Carl Peters, and he had gone into East Africa looking for uh, opportunities for his country, for, for Germany, even if it wasn't an official state-run you know, exploration or voyage. Uh, he was essentially, I mean, he was a patriot, you know, working for, for, for Germany, and he uh, went in and started setting up some different commercial enterprises there, looking, you know, testing things out to see if uh, profits could be made. In, the, in those parts of East Africa that he was traveling to. And he also got a number of different local uh, leaders to sign treaties, these sort of blank African treaties where they you know, sort of fill in their name and, and they had all these stipulations that they would follow when you know, recognizing the, the sovereignty of, uh, in this case, Germany. And the Berlin Conference wrapped up in 1885 in the spring. And I, I believe that Carl Peters arrived back to Berlin almost within days of the calling to an end of the, of the conference. And he's, you know, showed up just very conveniently with all these treaties in his hand. And he said, hey, you know, now I, I have actually followed the rules, maybe, you know, unknowingly, but I have all these, this evidence now that we actually have these areas. And that played right into uh, eventually to German 
claims in East Africa. So it was through those specific things, you know, setting up the posts, setting up enterprises, getting lo locals to sign over their, their um, the, basically their rights and, the, and their, their sovereignty to a, a foreign sovereign. Those were some of the key things that, that European powers had to do to demonstrate that they were in charge someplace. So of course, not all people living in an area are going to be super excited about being, you know, colonized or an empire coming in and taking over their land. So what did resistance to European imperialism look like in Africa? Yeah, that, that is a, a great question and it's well put. If you look at maps of, of Africa, like before 1885 and then around the time of say, you know, 1910, the, the 1914, the, the time of the outbreak of World War One. It really is astonishing how, if we're just talking about Africa here, how rapidly Europeans made claim on these territories. I mean, Africa is about, it's roughly three times the size of the continental United States. I mean, it's a massive continent. And within just, I mean, years, uh, European powers, they, they snap up all these claims to these territories. And if you were to look at, you look at those two maps, you might say, well, this is almost like inevitable, or this had to happen, or, or what, were the, yeah, what, what was happening on the ground there? And you're absolutely right. People are not just sitting around waiting for Europeans to show up and, you know, and to tell them what to do and tell them that they had a new leader and these kinds of things. And there was resistance throughout this time period in, from South Asia, Southeast Asia, throughout Africa, Sub-Saharan Africa, North Africa. And it took all kinds of different forms. A, a real basic form that it took, of course, was armed conflict, uh, you know, fighting back. I mentioned the British in 1879, they, they sort of almost like waltz into Zululand in Southern Africa, expecting to take over that area. And I forget exactly how many men they had, but they had, it was a relatively small contingent of troops, but they do just walk into, march into Zululand in 1879, expecting, I think, largely to, to just be able to do what they, they wanted to do, which is claim that area. And the Zulu fought back. And in fact, at the Battle of Sandawana, in 1879, uh, the British were defeated, and it was it was a big scandal back in Britain. You know, how how could the British forces be brought low by, um, as as they would would have put it at the time, by you know this, by this backward African people, the, the Zulu, but that that's one clear example of how oftentimes people took up arms against people that they viewed as invaders and, and conquerors, and it was not just a um, you know, one just, you know, constant uh, European continuing encroachment into Africa and South Asia. There were uh, many, many setbacks. Another big one, 1896, the Battle of Ottawa in around the Horn of Africa, and sort of Northeastern Africa. The Battle of Ottawa in 1896 was a huge defeat for the Italians, where the, the Abyssinians or the Ethiopians uh, simply resisted Italian encroachment on their territory. They fought a, a very large set battle, 1896, and the Ethiopians defeated the Italians. So some of it was just armed uh, conflict. In, in many cases, Africans or you know, Indians, uh, Vietnamese and others coming under the European yoke, they would uh, try to avoid the Europeans. They would uh, flee, basically. This oftentimes happened around the times where there were um, forced labor requirements that were imposed on them or, or taxation. You know, lots of times people just pick up and leave to avoid paying taxes or having to work. And then there were all kinds of more subtle ways in which people resisted these conquests. Some, when, when, it, when it was sort of a done deal and there was a new regime in town, whether it was French or Belgian or Portuguese or whatever, oftentimes workers would engage in slowdowns where they just they wouldn't work as hard as they were as, as they could. Uh, sometimes they would actually under if they were working, say, on a, a, some sort of agricultural plantation, they might undermine the work that was being done by destroying crops, not even slowing down, but destroying crops or, or not planting seeds properly, these kinds of things. 
And they might even do something as subtle as give, uh, you know, sort of ridiculous nicknames to Europeans. And and they would call Europeans different names. Sometimes not even behind their backs, but right in front of their faces, because Europeans oftentimes didn't have the language ability that they needed to be able to converse, you know, on everyday matters with, um, with locals. And so in some cases, I mean, I'm thinking in particular a book that was written about the, the Belgian Congo, Congolese in certain areas, they, they took a lot of uh, pleasure in, in giving Belgians and other Europeans really kind of nasty nicknames. And uh, these, these Belgians were sometimes just, they, they embraced it. They didn't even know what the, the nickname meant. And little did they know that they were walking around, you know, calling themselves by some sort of horrendous nickname in the local language. So from really direct means, you know, just you know, warfare and, and uh, defensive actions to things as, as small as, um, you know, using language and nicknames to resist the, the colonizer. Resistance took a whole, a whole slew of different forms. So when we were talking about the Berlin Conference, you were talking about how this was a primarily European conference to keep peace in Europe. Now, imperialism, as they go out, taking over parts, different parts of the world and different countries. Some historians look at that and see a direct link to World War I and, and imperialism and nationalism. So could you perhaps, I know that sometimes whole college courses for, for an entire year are, are taught on, on this subject, but perhaps in, a, in just a few minutes to end our podcast, could you tell us at least just a little bit of an introduction about how imperialism and the scramble for Africa contributes to World War One. Sure, that, and that's a that's a great question. A lot of people were really concerned about this at the time. If you go back to the very first years of the twentieth century, I mean, you could argue go back to the eighteen eighties and the, the Berlin Conference. I mean, there were fears that that Europeans, you know, running into each other overseas might that might spill over into a conflict in Europe itself. And then once the scramble really gets underway, and there's all these claims and and, and intensified action and you know the dutch east indies and and, and, and settler colonies and yeah all right so in all sorts of different places this really intense activity around the turn of the century a lot of people were you go back and look at what they were writing to themselves at the time they were worried that somehow this was going to spill over into a um a conflict in in europe and at first some people even at the outbreak of the war they they insinuated or they they argued some of them did that, that maybe this is actually what had happened this is one of the reasons why the war broke out but it, Actually, there were never there, there was not ever a conflict over overseas empire that led to the crisis of July of 1914. So it, it, the, these fears weren't actually materialized. However, there are really two big ways in which uh, imperialism, I mean, it really did feed into the outbreak of war in 1914. One way that it did this is that it reinforced and, re- and really strengthened the international alliances that had divided up Europe by 1914. There, there was the Triple Alliance between Germany, Austria, Hungary, and Italy on the one side, and then there was the Triple Entente, the Entente powers, which was Britain and France and Russia. And you know, that's a whole other history. You could, you could teach a whole course just about that, You know how those alliances came into existence. They, were, they, they existed by the beginning of the 20th century. And Imperialism worked to to reinforce them, and and they they these the, the alliance system it really was a, a reason why the war broke out and, and why it became the war that it did because once one power was involved they all became involved, and the way in which imperialism reinforced these two alliances um, I think I can go through this pretty quickly here um, it was really two specific events 
two crises in Morocco that really reinforced the two, the, the, the alliance system or these, these sets of alliances. Um, there was one Moroccan crisis in 1905, 1906, which was resolved through something called the Algeciras Conference. Uh, then there was another Moroccan crisis in 1911. And there's a lot of story behind both of the crises, but basically, uh, you know, Germany and France, and to a lesser degree, some of the other European powers, they were sort of jockeying for influence and yeah, influence and control in Morocco, which by the turn of the century is one of the last uh, African territories that had not been claimed by a European power. And to make a long story short, Germany thought it wasn't really getting its due. It wasn't having its rights recognized in Morocco. And more so, uh, the emperor at the time, Wilhelm II, he was interested in sort of shaking up the alliance between Britain and France. And he thought that maybe if he took some sort of uh, action in Morocco, that this would somehow upset the status quo, you know, sort of drive a wedge between France and Britain. And it would sort of give Germany some breathing room since they wouldn't be so surrounded anymore. And so they, in both in 1905 and, and in 1911, Germany takes these aggressive moves. And I mean, in 1905, Wilhelm II, the emperor of Germany, he actually showed up in Morocco himself on, on one of his yachts um, while he was touring around the Mediterranean. In 1911, the Germans sent, they sent a gunboat to Morocco to sort of flex their muscles. And in both cases, uh, where they're trying to make, make a claim in Morocco, it leads to this, this crisis among these powers and then to um, these conferences to resolve the crisis. And basically, Wilhelm II's attempt to you know, drive a wedge between the French and the British by taking action in Morocco. I mean, basically, he wanted to make the British come to their senses and, and make them realize, are you really willing to risk a, you know, going to war to back up uh, France, even if it's over something as small as some territory in Morocco? Well, it, ba it backfired because both the French and the British, they realized after these uh, crises that they really needed each other more than ever because you have this sort of crazy uh, emperor, Wilhelm II, he's really a loose cannon. He's hard to figure out and he's rather erratic with some of his, his actions. We can't really depend on that guy. And so, and he's also willing to take these risks. So we better stick together, you know, even tighter. Uh, we need to develop our relationship even more. So his attempts, they backfired. So the two Moroccan crises, they actually ended up having the effect of strengthening the alliances. So that's one specific way in which overseas actions fed back into developments in Europe. The second thing is more is more general, which is that it tended to uh, reinforce a mindset in Europe that was inclined towards uh, or increasingly inclined towards competition and conflict. So, you know, the, with the development of, of social Darwinism, uh, which wasn't universally embraced, but it became a very popular way of looking at the world, you know, where... Um, you know, Darwin's biological principles were applied to societies, you know, so that's basically what social Darwinism is, this idea that all societies are in conflict with each other, or, or people framed it different ways, where races are in conflict with each other, or as nations that are in conflict with each other, or some combination thereof. This is a very popular idea with sort of increasingly negative nationalism around the turn of the century, more and more Europeans saw themselves as being in competition with each other, with another race, with another nation, this kind of thing. And overseas empire just reinforced this even further. If you were a social Darwinist at the time, you know, late 1800s, early 1900s, and you wanted to point to evidence that your, your theories were, were true, you, you could say, well, look at what's happening right now. The world is in conflict with itself. We're having these empires being built. You know, we Europeans are at the forefront of this. Of course, we're the best. They would have said about themselves. You know, we are a superior race. We are a superior nation, whatever. And look, the, the proof of the pudding is in the eating. I mean, we're actually building these empires and defeating these other peoples. 
this is just proof that social Darwinism is, is true. And so it really fed in, imperialism fed into this competitive mindset in Europe at the time and reinforced it. And it actually, I think it's fair to say to some people's minds, competition and, and even warfare became something that wasn't, it wasn't something that just happened sometimes. It was something that actually was even desirable because this is the way that the world worked was through competition and through conflict. And so if a war is going to happen, maybe it's not something that we should try to, you know, stave off and, and postpone or, or just avoid altogether. Maybe actually if a war is to come, it's something that we should embrace and we should jump in and, and, and give it our best shot because this is, again, just how the world works from, from that mindset. So that's the a more uh, sort of, it's not a vague way, but a more, a more general way in which I believe overseas imperialism fed into the outbreak of World War I is it, it, for, again, not everybody, but a lot of people came to view conflict as something that was not, not just inevitable, it was actually something that, that was to be embraced when it, when it came. And as you see a lot of people's reactions in July and August of 1914, a lot of people were actually quite excited that the war broke out because it would give them, them and their country or their nation or their race a chance to prove itself finally. So we have just scratched the surface of the years that your book covers. There's still a whole nother hundred years. So if people are interested in reading your book and learning more about this, how could someone go about purchasing it? Oh gosh, it's great. Thank you for asking that question. It's it's pretty widely available. I mean, it's now, I don't know if it's available in, in your, your local bookshop necessarily, but it would, that'd be great to take a look. But it's also, uh, you know, on, on a lot of outlets that you can find on the internet, like Amazon, of course. And not only is it, uh, the, the hardcover is, uh, it's not inexpensive, I'll put it that way, but it, it is in a very, very economical paperback version and it also um, has come out as an e-text. So um, it's uh, available in a variety of different formats. Thank you so much for being with us today and for sharing your knowledge. Oh, thank you so much for having me. I, again, I appreciate it. This is wonderful. Then Again is a production of the Northeast Georgia History Center in Gainesville, Georgia. Our podcast is edited by media producer Guada Rodriguez. Our digital and on-site programs are made possible by the Ada May Ivester Education Center. Please join us next week for another episode of Then Again.